Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. Glad you're here today. My name is Chris Causey. I'm the pastor. And uh, today we're going to kick off, uh, we were originally going to kick off a new series that uh, some of you got postcards about already promoing called At the Movies. And uh, it's going to be a really incredible series. And we're actually going to be starting that next Sunday due to some technical difficulties. Let me just say that if you have to postpone a sermon because of technical difficulties, it means it's going to be good. And... uh, or yes. And so um, we look forward to seeing you back next week because we really are excited for an entire month. It's going to be a really fun, engaging series. If there's been a series, in fact, that you've been thinking, you've been waiting, there's an individual in your mind, a neighbor, a friend, or a coworker, where you're like, man, I, I want to invite them to Encounter Church, but I'm not sure when to do it. This series is when to do it. It's different. It's engaging. It's fun. It's just going to, it's going to make summer stand out a little bit. And we're going to engage those deeper storylines that are in the movies that we all love. And so I look forward to seeing you guys back here next week when we kick that off. Today what I want to do is dig into something that Jason spoke about a couple weeks ago, in fact. I wanted to turn his message, which was really strong, I wanted to turn it into a little two-part series. And it starts, believe it or not, in February 12th of 1990. I uh, I have hair, and I'm about yay tall, and I'm nine years old. And my world, my life, in fact, is ruled by one thing. The greatest thing, the greatest uh, video game that's ever come out, it's Super Mario Brothers 3, right? Some of you are wise, and you know that. And, uh, and for me and my brother, it was the biggest thing on planet Earth, right? I mean, you have to remember back in those days, electricity had just happened. Um, you, you couldn't watch and stream things, and so you were confined to three channels, and Nintendo was a big deal. And so my brother and I were trying to defeat this like, game. It had all these levels. It was so hard. And, um, and then we hear about this thing, this television show on one of the three channels that we get that's going to tell us it's an expose, all the secrets of Super Mario Brothers 3 in one hour, right? And they're going to tell us how to beat the game. They're going to tell us all these incredible secrets that were embedded inside the game where you can do these series of jumps and leaps and tunnels and you can win just like that. And so for me as a nine-year-old and my brother as an eight-year-old, this was the most important moment of our life. But there was a problem. That night we had a basketball game. And uh, I don't look like a basketball player. I didn't then either. And so it usually just killed an hour of my time. And so my brother and I are playing basketball and it gets done and my mom's still not there. And I'm like, Thomas, like, this is really critical. And we, we said, you know what, instead of waiting at the gym, let's walk to the gate and wait at the gate for her. And so we walk to the gate and we wait. She's still not there. And we're like, man, this is, you can feel it like rising inside of us. I'm pretty sure this, it was anxiety um, for a nine-year-old. And, and we're like, hey, you know what would be even better? Uh, there's, if we walk to the street that she would have to turn on, like it's, it's only two blocks, and if we wait at the street corner, then she doesn't even have to stop the car. She could just slow down and we can dive in. I mean, this is, I mean, we'll save at least 45 seconds to a minute. And so we walk and we wait at the end of the street. And then there comes my mom. Not slowing down, but to a screeching stop. Because her two small sons are waiting at the end of a street in the middle of a neighborhood where this gymnasium was that was known throughout the region Uh, at one point, historically, had the highest crime rate. Uh, We were averaging in 18 months, 18 deaths. Uh, So it was a month, like every single month, someone was dying in this small little area. It was prostitution, drug rings, gang violence. I mean, it was the worst area in the whole region. 
And here, my brother and I are standing in the midst of that at 7 p.m. at night. She pulls up, stops. What in the world are you doing? We're like, woman, drive that car. We got a television show to catch. And we get home, and she pulls up, puts the car in park, and says, go straight to bed. Just go straight to bed. And so my brother and I have to go straight to bed. And it's like 7.45, and I know in my head that like 15 minutes, the show's going to come on. Now, if this was today, I'd have streamed it on my phone or my watch or some holographic image. I could have watched it on Netflix, on demand. But back then, the only way you recorded something was VCR. And we all know, if you know, that VCR programming took a master's degree at least. I'm nine years old. And so we're like, I'm never going to see this show. And then to top it off, my mom, because my bedroom borders the living room where the television bumps up against the wall. And my mom's sitting there because she has rewarded herself. She's got the kids to bed. She has a night alone. And she's in there, and I hear her flipping through the three channels. And she gets to, coming up next, all the secrets of Super Mario Brothers 3 exposed. And I'm like, no! And as a nine-year-old, I learned this really profound lesson. I learned how heavy regret is. Because I laid in that bed for 30 to 45 minutes just wishing there was a way I could redo that simple decision that I did. You ever felt like that? Begging the universe. I mean, just wishing someone had invented a time machine because you'd have paid whatever to get in it. So we go back to that moment right before it all went south. I've never, ever, at that, up until that point, I never felt so deep inside my soul that there was a redo card that I could pull from the universe. And it gripped me. In fact, 28 years later, I still vividly remember that. It's my first significant regret in life as a nine-year-old. And I think the challenge is that we all live with lives that we, we know what it's like to wish there was a redo. But what if there was a way to never do in the first place? What if there was a way, a framework that you and I could engage with that would help us maybe not change the decisions we've made, but help us to step into our middle schools, high schools, colleges, into our workspaces, into our personal spaces, and have a framework for making decisions that doesn't lead to regret. A few weeks ago, Jason unpacked this idea of what does it look like to, to know that we are our own worst enemy. And he looked at why we make the decisions that we make. He unpacked the deeper spiritual reality that oftentimes is the gravity pulling us towards these decisions that we regret and these decisions we wish we could undo and redo. And yet, even walking away with that, I recognize that some of you are here today and some of the spiritual truths that you heard that day or maybe even today, you're like, I don't know where I am on this whole spiritual spectrum. I'm not sure. I, like, I, I'm still trying to process the rock concert I showed up accidentally to and what that is because I've never seen a church with music like that and they are incredible, but I, I don't know what to do with that. And, and the whole next life thing, I'm not sure where that falls, but here's what I know about all of us. Whether you're engaged spiritually with God, whether you're a committed Christian, or whether you're exploring or you're indifferent, what I know, we may not all agree on the next life, but we all agree on this life. And we all want a life filled with better decisions and fewer regrets. I don't have to know you to know that about you. And the framework I want to look at today where Jason unpacked the why 
we do what we do. I want to unpack a framework to help us to know what to do when we find ourselves in those moments. And so whether you're 9 or 99, this is a framework that can transform the way you make decisions when you find yourself in those moments. And to key in, I want to especially talk about how to minimize regrets. And over the course of looking at this ancient story found in one of the very first books of the Bible, I want to show you a very timely framework that can help you and I minimize our regrets. Jason, when he welcomed you here, told you about an app that we have. And inside that app, if you've already downloaded it or if you would like to do it now, is the message notes for today. We've already preloaded the passages that I want to speak and engage with today. It's already in there. Just click on Encounter Church message notes and you'll find Genesis 25, verses 29 through 34. And inside of that section... um, If you're still downloading, it'll also be on the screen behind me, and so you'll be able to follow along as I read. But inside of this is a place for you to be able to engage and kind of capture, because this is a framework you want to write down today. This is something that you want to memorize because it has the power to minimize the regrets that you and I can find ourselves making. So the book of Genesis is where I want to go. And the book of Genesis is the first book. The Bible is a two-volume set. There's the Old Testament right, which was primarily focused on Jewish history, and it was primarily built on one promise, the promised land. But at the end of that first volume, at the end of the Old Testament, there is hints to a promised one, which is the primary kind of emphasis of the second volume, the New Testament, where the Old Testament is about the promised land and the Jewish people inheriting it and living in it and the history that flows from it. The New Testament is about primarily the promised one of God, Jesus. And inside of the book of Genesis is a book that is about the beginning of beginnings. It walks through not just the beginning of the universe. It doesn't just lay out the framework of how everything starts. It talks about the birth of God's plan. And the way that God starts his plan is through a man named Abraham. He's perhaps one of the most famous spiritual figures in human history. Uh, There are billions of people today, over half of the earth's population would count him as a spiritual father because Jews, Christians, and Muslims all point to Abraham as their spiritual father. And so Abraham's this significant figure. God does this incredible work in his life. He makes this bold faith step, and he and his wife, without any child at all, well into the later years of their life, have a child named Isaac. And when Abraham dies, he dies a very wealthy, powerful man. And Isaac inherits all of it. And so Isaac is sitting on a significant amount of wealth, significant amount of power and influence. He has a small little tribe of people and servants. And what happens is that Isaac will end up having two sons that are specifically important because they're the focus of our uh, text today. They're born twins, but... One comes out first, and so if you happen to know any twins, that matters. Even today, I'm the oldest. And that, I'm the oldest, is a really important plot point to this storyline today. Because the oldest in ancient times got a significant amount of power, influence, and inheritance. So this issue of being the oldest, this birthright, was one of the most important things that you could have as a child. And so Jacob and Esau, the two boys, Esau the oldest, Jacob the youngest, Esau, daddy's favorite, Jacob, mommy's favorite, with all the dysfunction that can arise out of that, we, we step into a story of two boys who've grown up. One knows how to cook, 
One knows how to manage the finances at home. One understands the family business, Jacob. And the other one is a man's man. He's an outdoorsman. He lives in the open field. He can kill animals with his bare hands. He, he, I mean, he's just awesome. And these are the two boys. So maybe you have kids like that, where they're just so different. Then you can understand what it's like for Isaac, because these two kids could not be any different. And it comes to fruition when they're adults. Verse 29, it says, that once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. That's how our story starts. Jacob doing what he does really well, managing the family business, taking care of the people at home, and he's cooking. And Esau, where has he been? He's been out in the open country hunting, and this time it wasn't successful. So he walks in, and the first thing that we learn about Esau is he's famished. He's starving. He's weary. He's weak is one of the ways that the word famished can be translated. And what happens that I think is interesting is that this story plays out pretty tragically. And the writer of the book of Genesis wanted us to understand something subtle but powerful. That the road, the paths that lead to decline, the paths that lead to decisions that destroy our lives are not steep. They have a slow, gradual decline. And that's why we're introduced to Esau as a man who is famished. He's hungry. Really, really hungry. Because this is the way you step onto a path that can lead to danger. The idea of paths is actually an acrostic I want to give you because this is really critical. We all can start a dangerous path. There's All of us can find ourselves in places where we could write a sentence like that. It may not be famished, but I think there's, there are different paths that we can all find ourselves stepping into that can lead very quickly if we're not paying attention to a place we'd never want to go. And paths is an acrostic that stands for a series of different triggers or different kind of dispositions that we could have. One is pain. Relational, emotional. Right? This doesn't have just to be physical pain. Loneliness is a powerful emotional pain. Rejection is a powerful emotional pain. They've done studies, in fact, that relational pain, rejection, if you took Tylenol, it would minimize the pain you feel. Because our brains cannot distinguish the difference between a physical pain of our body and an emotional relational pain in our life. They've been able to document it. People, people taking Tylenol actually have decreased experiences of loneliness and rejection. But when we're in this pain point, that's one of those moments. Another is anger. Right? Whether justified or not, just anger. Or tired, exhausted, or hungry, like Esau, or stressed. But I imagine if you look at this list, these different paths, you can probably see one or two of yours up there. When I um, first met my wife and we were starting to date, um, I remember as it was getting serious that my mother-in-law pulled me over aside, my future one, and said, hey, you need to know something really important. I said, yeah. She was like, I, I mean, I see this getting really serious, and there's, I want to give you the single best piece of advice you'll ever get from me on how to have a good relationship with, with this incredible girl. 
She's like, all right, give it to me. I'm like, I'm ready to write this down. She's like, don't ever let her get hungry. I'm like, I'm sorry, what? Don't ever let her get hungry. I'm like, I'm sorry, am I dating a gremlin? Like, what in the world? Like, no, you just need to understand. If you never let her get hungry, you'll be safe. It's like, oh, okay. She was right. Not that I was dating a gremlin, but that it's really dangerous if she gets hungry. In fact, in our household, we have a word for it. We call it hangry. I don't know if you have hanger in your household, but I have hanger in mine. Right? <laughs> Got to testify. And so this idea of like hanger is, it's real. And she'll tell you. In fact, this past week, we had a moment where I was trying to have a conversation. She's like, you need to know I'm hungry right now. <laughs> and I was like, I will reschedule this conversation. <laughs> I have a six-year-old the same way. For me, I, and I don't see it. When I get hungry, I don't transform into someone else. But when I get tired, oh, I do. If I have five or six nights where I'm pulling five or six hours of sleep at busy season, I'm about as emotional as a six-year-old little girl. I mean, I don't, I'm not a super emotional person. I'm, I don't have all, like, it's hard to hurt my feelings, really hard. But you let me not get sleep, and I get sensitive. And the feelings I never have, they start to get hurt. I'm like, Jenny... She's like, you just need to go to bed. Like, she can hear it in my voice. And, and our daughter, poor girl, has inherited both of those things <laughs> from us. The hanger and the tired. But we all have it, don't we? We all know what it's like to walk into a grocery store hungry and to leave with a $200 and $300 bill. We all know what it's like to take a step into a space, into a place, and to feel something inside of us that we recognize isn't our best. And I think what's critical is if we recognize the path, if we know who we are enough to the point that we know which one of these paths can lead to danger, that's the first step in this framework. It's just becoming aware that you're there. Like my wife this week when she says, you just need to know I'm hungry. And I just needed to know I needed to shut up. That was helpful. I mean, think about it. How many conversations do you wish you could redo because you were standing in the start of one of those? Stressful day at work, idiot boss, really exhausted because you have a newborn and you haven't slept in what feels like, feels like three years, right? Or to be really angry at what you're watching on television, just to think everybody's an idiot that believes that. When we, when we step onto those paths, it's a slow and gradual decline, but if we're not careful, if we don't realize that we're there, we can very quickly end up in a dangerous place because of it. But the story continues. It says that he said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. And it says that is why he's called Edom, a little parenthetical thought. We'll come back to that. And it says that Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is a birthright to me? And this story has quickly degraded, hasn't it? I mean, here's a guy who's famished, and he wants some of that stew, some of that red stew, he says. What I love is that the, the Bible, especially the Old Testament, was not written in English. It was written in Hebrew. That was the, the language, predominantly. That was the language of the people back then. Uh, and so 
the phrasing in this, in the Hebrew, is actually really telling. It's really instructive, in fact, for a framework. It, Esau doesn't come in and says, give me some of that red stew. He actually comes in and he says, give me some of that red, red. He doesn't even say stew. He repeats red twice. He's so fixated. He's so focused. He's got tunnel vision. He's exaggerating. He's about to die, he says. You ever seen a kid who's about to die because they haven't eaten? I mean, he's in this like crazy place and space, and he's fixated. Not even on, he can't even say stew. He just says red, 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 like a toddler. He's so fixated. Uh, about a year ago, this week, in fact, um, we were walking, we were family trip, and we were in Washington, D.C. We just left the um, Lincoln Memorial. It was a really hot day, kind of like this past week. We are just like, man, this is hot. And um, it was around 11.30, and I'm holding Ella's hand. We're walking by the reflection pool, and we're talking about lunch and getting ice cream because in our family, ice cream is a love language. And, um, and so we're talking about ice cream. Um, we're holding a little hand, we're walking, and all of a sudden, I feel something like this pretty sharp pressure, pain on one of my fingers. And I look down, and my daughter is literally bent down, biting it as we're walking. And I was like, Ella? She looks up at me with those little cute eyes, and I was like, sweetie, um, teeth are for food, not people. And she's like, and she starts to kind of tear up. But, but daddy... You just look so delicious. I'm so hungry. And I was like, okay. She's like, but daddy, your nose looks like grapes and your ears look like pancakes. I'm so hungry. And I was like, okay. Um, and she begins to recount all the things that mommy looks like and all the things that daddy looks like. And it's like one of those cartoon scenes, you know, back in the day where it was like they were on a, an island and the person turns into a hot dog. I'm like, this is literally what's happening. My daughter is picturing me like a walking buffet and she's already trying to eat me. And I'm like, girl. And, and, and in this moment, I have to give her a very profound parenting lesson is that we don't eat people. We eat food every time. And I'm looking at Jenny like, should this require a counselor? Like, is this something we're going to look back on as a defining moment? I'm a little concerned what's playing out in front of me. But the reality is, is that what my daughter was experiencing was exactly what Esau was. And it's exactly what you and I have experienced too. When we get into those dangerous places and we keep stepping down those paths, we keep walking, we keep moving, and we become more and more fixated, more and more obsessed with what we don't have and what we need what's lacking in our lives, right? It's me when I think back to being 12 and in my head, I, I didn't have any friends, never. Didn't have any, ever. And felt like I would never have good friends. And when you're in those moments, you get fixated and desperate. All of a sudden, even a bad group of friends is better than no group of friends, isn't it? And then you grow up and it's, you never grow out of it. My six-year-old will just learn more adult-appropriate ways of managing that. But the fixation, the focus, the tunnel vision, the exaggeration, all that's real. Right? If you're in a, se a season and you're single and you really want to be in a relationship, it feels like there is no one on this earth 
that's perfect for you. And you'll feel that weight of loneliness and you'll feel that sense of heaviness and that desire that's not being satisfied. And what happens when we start to fixate is that we find ourselves settling. I know it's not a good relationship, but a, a relationship is better than being lonely. We fall into these traps of staring at what we don't have. And we start to talk about things and use phrases like never and always and every. We get exaggerated. But it doesn't feel exaggerated to us. It feels real. Because why? We're stepping down this dangerous path. We're moving deeper and deeper into this journey. And this thing that we're staring at becomes an obsession. And when something becomes an obsession, you will find yourself making concessions in order to get something to satisfy it. It may be a website. It may be a click on Amazon. It may be a conversation that goes further than it should or physically than it should. But when we start to obsess with what we lack, we will begin to make concessions to get something that at least will release or temporarily help us escape the pain, the anger, the exhaustion, the tired, the hungry, or the stressed moment that we find ourselves in. And this is exactly what Esau is doing. He's like, what good is a birthright to me? What does it matter? I want to give you a tool that's really helpful. It's something I use because what happens in those moments is you get so nearsighted, you're so focused, you're so fixed on what's in front of you, you lose sight of the big picture. Whether it's pain, hunger, tired, right? I mean, you just fill in the blank, whatever it is for you. This tool that helps me, could help you, is something, it's just the 2020 tool. Where I, I, I kind of mentally, I just tap myself, I've recognized the danger, I'm like, okay, you know what, I'm tired. When I'm tired or when I'm stressed, I'm stupid. Just my IQ, my IQ drops 20 points, I know it. And so I have to kind of give myself a reality check. It's not enough just to recognize the danger. I need a reality check. So take a step back, Chris. Get 20-20 vision. Let's see the big picture. So last night at a gym, working out, because I want to be healthy. I hate working out. Can I just say that out loud? I did. I hate working out. I don't enjoy anything about it. And I have to do 20-20 when I'm doing it. I'm like, Chris, in 20 minutes you will be glad that you felt like you were on the verge of death because you're going to be stronger, you're going to be healthier, you're going to have more energy. And so that 20 minutes, oftentimes for those small things, helps me recalibrate, gives me the full picture. Okay, I feel better. Sometimes it's 20 days. That's where I am right now with my doctorate. I am exhausted. I am very clear that I'm on that path if I'm not careful. And I have about a month to finish my doctorate. And so if I'm not breathing or eating or spending time with my family or working or preparing a message, I'm writing and researching and studying and interviewing. And what I keep telling myself inside our house, even this morning, we have a vacation coming up. Ella made little badges to say how many days to our vacation. Because in my head, I'm like, if I can make it to then, I'll be done. And oh, I've been worth it. It doesn't feel worth it when I'm exhausted. It doesn't feel worth it when I'm staring at a screen and I don't know what to write. It may not feel worth it when you just had that argument with your spouse and you're not sure that you, you want to keep fighting for this thing because you fall into the never or the ever. Or when you find yourself staring at what feels like a dream has been destroyed in front of your very eyes. And to say, let's wait 20 days. Or maybe sometimes bigger things, you need to just wait 20 months. And say, okay, in two years, 
what will I think about this moment? That that 2020 rule, it's not magical. All it does is it forces me to zoom out and get a greater perspective. Something that I think had Esau done, it would have changed the conversation. It would have changed the storyline. But what happens? But, Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread. I mean, Esau doesn't take the 2020. He does a step back. What does he do? He enters into a contractual agreement where he sells his birthright. He gives his birthright away. Remember, a birthright is a significant thing. The birthright in ancient Jewish society, the oldest child would get two-thirds of the inheritance. They had decision-making power. The, The smallest child, there was no equal split amongst the children. The youngest, the youngers, they, they didn't get the fair shake. The older kid got decision-making abilities. The older kid got two-thirds of the inheritance. The older kid got the promise. They got to carry the family name. That's what he had in his hand when he had the birthright. And Esau, literally through this oath, makes the equivalent of sitting down with a lawyer in modern times and signing a contract and handing it over to his brother. And what does his brother hand back? His brother hands back a bowl. He signs his birthright over, and he gets a bowl and bread. It's crazy, isn't it? He sells everything to get this one thing. Gives it all away. His appetite in his mind was bigger and more important than his birthright. Appetite. What's fascinating about this is that we don't find out until this moment. It's almost like the writer is wanting to lead us somewhere. He just tells us it's red. He doesn't tell what it is. But this is actually, this is actually what is poured into the bowl. Lentils. Red lentils from the Middle East. This is what Jacob has been cooking. This is what he's been preparing. You almost just want to tap him on the shoulder and be like, Esau, time out. So this is Tuesday at Panera. It's $6. And you're about to give away the financial equivalent of $600,000. $600,000 for $6 soup of the day. Are you, are you sure... $6 soup of the day, 600,000 family inheritance. Esau, priorities, man. Like, get them, see them, understand them. This, this isn't worth what you're getting. He, he misses it. He doesn't see that he's trading a birthright to satisfy an appetite. But the reality is it's really easy to pick on Esau because you see what he's holding. But we fall into the same trap. Our bowls are just filled with different things. Our marriage is not going the way it wants, and he or she at work is so much nicer to us than they are at home. Right? Or I, I, I really need to buy that. I know I can't afford it. It would make me feel better. Or just one more drink. That'll help me relax. 
we all have our bowls. And we all fill them with different things. But if we're not careful, we can all make the same decision of giving away a birthright to satisfy an appetite. That in our marriage, if we're not careful, our I do can become an I did. And that our bank account and our credit cards start drifting further and further away. That it's helpful just to take that time out with that 2020 and to say, you know what, as I'm stepping back, what's my priority? What do I really want to do? What do I really want in my life? Is it willing to sell? Am I willing to sell out what could have been a significant relationship for the rest of my life for just an appetite in this moment? Am I really willing to sell out my relationship with my kids in this moment because of school, because of sports, and how I want them to succeed in those things? Am I willing to sell out my future relationship with my kids because I'm consumed by them achieving something that I want them to have? We all have bowls. They just get filled with different things, but we all can fall into the same trap of selling out our birthright for an appetite. This is why I think church is helpful, honestly, just on Sundays to show up, to engage with us online when you travel, because it's a reminder. It's a check. It's a, a way of recalling priorities to say, okay, what's number one? What's really worth my life? That's why next Sunday night, July 15th, we're having a worship and communion night where it'll just be a, just a longer time where we can come together and talk to deeper things and to lift our eyes up to higher things to, again, just to reset our priorities because we will always drift away from those important things in our life if we're not careful we will always move away further and further from those really important things unless we intentionally are recalling them and reminding ourselves because the bowl and our appetite will always in those moments feel bigger and more important and more demanding and more satisfying than the birthright there's one other piece to this that I think is really important. A mentor pointed me to this reality a long time ago, and it stuck with me. That as you thumb through the pages or flip through the screens of the Bible, one of the things that you notice is the way God talks about himself. He'll use these descriptors to connect back to the past and to the promise of what he did. And that as you thumb through the New Testament, Old Testament, what you'll see is this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? Abraham, that makes sense. Isaac's firstborn, that makes sense. But Jacob, Jacob's not a firstborn. Why is it the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Because when Esau sold his birthright, he sold that right too. Jacob legally took on the mantle of being the firstborn, the older son, the son of the promise that God had promised Abraham to. And I think one of the tragic things is that you, I wonder if it ever hit him way, way, way later. Or if he could be here today and hear us talk, that he would have realized, Esau, it should have been the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. It should have been when people talked about God that they should have said your name too. They should have described your bloodline, not Jacob's. 
And here's this powerful realization that comes when you realize the danger of walking down this path if you're not careful, is that when these impulses strike, when these moments of regret are starting to be forged, all we see is what we gain. We never see what we'll lose. We never see what we lose. Only what we gain. And I've been able to say, Esau, you should have been in that storyline God was writing. He was desiring to do something bigger and greater through your life, and you stepped out of that. You wrote yourself out of the story, Esau. All you could see was red lentils. You didn't see your legacy and what you were going to lose in that moment. And I think if we're not careful, you and I we can get so fixated on the lentils in front of us, the next job promotion, the next salary bump, the next house, the bigger house, the nicer car, the important places to go and speak, the titles, the degrees. We can get so fixated on the lentils in front of us that we lose sight of the fact that we will leave a legacy. And what type of legacy do you want to leave? What is it that you want to leave behind when you're no longer there? Because I think if you can determine the legacy you want to leave, if you can take your eyes off the lentils long enough, I think it starts to do something inside of you. It changes how you parent. changes how you do marriage. I am in this, my storyline was that my father walked out on my family before I was ever born because he wanted to pursue a career in music. And you know what that career in music became? A lentil. He doesn't do it anymore. And you know what he lost? He lost me. And he lost this incredible six-year-old girl that I get to do life with every day. He lost an opportunity for things that actually matter. Because he thought this was more important. And I'm aware enough to know that I could make the same foolish choice. And you could too. So I don't know what your lentils are. I don't know what the paths that you could find yourself walking down. But I do know this. That if you and I are willing to become aware, if we're really willing to recognize when we walk onto those dangerous paths, to to give ourselves a reality check. And to take a step back and to recall the priorities that we actually want to see in our lives. Then I know that you and I can experience a life with better decisions and fewer regrets. Let's pray.